Shelly Winters speaks Southern Brooklynese, proves she's a blonde bombshell who can act, is roommates with Marilyn Monroe, and inspires Marilyn to smile with her mouth open and break a leg. From 1947, it's A Double Life. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. 1947's A Double Life was Shelley Winters' big break. Playing a small but crucial role, the film gave Shelley a rare opportunity to show she was a sensual blonde who could also act. Under the meticulous direction of the talented George Cukor, with a nuanced screenplay by husband-wife writing team Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon, and co-starring the gentlemanly Ronald Coleman, Shelley couldn't have asked for a better star-making vehicle. In the years following her success in A Double Life, Shelley became roommates with another young starlet, Marilyn Monroe. The two would share everything from their Hollywood dreams and aspirations to mink coats and bathing suits. And Shelley, six years older than Marilyn, would have a greater influence on Marilyn's life than most of us know. Let's get right to the plot, then go behind the scenes to Shelley's years as a struggling starlet, the making of a double life, and her friendship with Marilyn. Tony John, Ronald Coleman, is a respected stage actor enjoying great success on Broadway in a comedy role. With the play closing soon, a producer friend asks Tony if he's interested in doing Shakespeare's Othello as his next show. Tony, aware of how his personal life is always affected by the parts he plays on stage, decides to think it over before accepting such a heavy role. Ex-wife Brita, Signe Hasso, still Tony's good friend and frequent co-star, seconds Tony's hesitation to play the role and advises him against it. Tony meets waitress Pat Kroll, Shelley Winters, at a restaurant late one night during his internal debate over accepting Othello, and the two hook up. Later that night, Tony decides to move forward with Othello, and rehearsals begin, with Brita cast as Desdemona. Tony's performance is hailed by audiences and critics alike, but the line between Othello on stage and Tony's life offstage gets more and more blurred with each performance. The jealousy Tony's Othello feels for Desdemona and Cassio follows Tony offstage, and he begins projecting that jealous insanity onto Brita and Bill Friend, Edmund O'Brien, the publicity agent for the show. By the play's 300th performance, Tony loses touch with reality and nearly strangles Brita, as Desdemona, to death on stage. He snaps back to reality just in time. But by the play's two-year mark, Tony truly becomes dangerous. One night after a performance, while mentally still acting out Othello, Tony goes to Pat's apartment. She invites him in, but Tony's behavior gets stranger by the minute. Now afraid, Pat tries to get Tony out of her apartment, but it's too late. He's completely overcome by Othello and strangles her to death. When Tony wakes up the next morning, he finds himself sleeping on Brita's couch with no recollection of murdering Pat. 
When Pat's murder is discovered, the medical examiner says she died by a quote-unquote kiss of death, as it's clear the murderer held Pat in a sensual embrace during the murder and kissed her. Bill Friend sees a publicity opportunity for the show and uses Pat's murder to advertise Othello, drawing parallels between Pat's kiss of death murder and Othello's kiss of death murder of Desdemona in the play. Tony is enraged by the ad and tells Bill to immediately pull it. Based on Tony's over-the-top response, Bill begins to suspect that Tony is Pat's murderer. He voices his suspicions to the police, and Tony becomes a suspect. Bill and police captain Bonner, Joe Sawyer, decide to test Tony by hiring an actress to dress and act like Pat at the restaurant where she and Tony met. From Tony's emotional reaction to this Pat double, it's clear to Bill and Captain Bonner that Tony is guilty of Pat's murder. They continue to observe him that night in the play, hoping to garner evidence to prove Tony's guilt. That night, Tony, as Othello, once again almost strangles Brita's Desdemona to death, coming closer than ever before to killing her on stage. Tony then realizes that he's being watched suspiciously by Bill and Captain Bonner in the wings. In a flash, Tony realizes that Othello has taken over his life. He murdered Pat and continues to put Brita's life in danger each performance. Tony can't live with the guilt, and at the end of the play, when Othello is to stab himself, Tony stabs himself for real, and it proves fatal. Tony dies backstage after confessing to Pat's murder. And that's the end of the film. Director George Cukor actually met Shelley Winters long before casting her in A Double Life. In fact, he was one of, if not the first, of Hollywood's elite to recognize that Shelley Winters had talent, way back when Shelley was still called Shirley Shrift. Teenage Shirley was one of countless young hopefuls who auditioned for Cukor during the two-year search for the actress to play Scarlett O'Hara in 1939's Gone with the Wind. Shirley, armed with no training or experience, but plenty of ambition and confidence, was convinced she was destined to play Scarlett and showed up at New York City's Grand Central Building to audition. Quote, Having read that enormous book several times, I decided there was only one person to play Scarlet. Me. I got myself done up in my sister's high-heeled shoes and a huge straw hat of my mother's with real pink flowers picked from the empty lot across the street, pinned under it. A regular Southern Belle. I wobbled into the building, found the office, and in my best Southern Brooklynese, announced to the secretary, I'm here to play Scarlet O'Hara. The secretary must have figured her bosses needed a laugh, so she sent me right in. With complete confidence, I slithered in to see the film moguls. They stared at the sight before them. A tall, skinny teenager in a pastel violet dress, an off-the-shoulder bargain basement special, with a black ribbon tied around my neck and three powder puffs stuffed in each bra cup." Unquote. The other two studio bigwigs in the room laughed out loud as young Shirley did her best to impress them with her southern Brooklynese accent. But George Cukor didn't laugh. Sensitive to Shirley's young age and obvious ambition, Cukor shushed his laughing colleagues, ordered Shirley a Coke, and asked her about her acting goals and dreams. 
Perhaps he even sensed a kindred, artistic spirit in the untapped talent of this gutsy newcomer. Cukor then offered Shirley some invaluable advice. Learn the craft of acting in New York, study play acting and speech, gain some experience on the stage, then come to Hollywood. Cukor's time, care, and advice meant the world to young Shirley, and she never forgot it, even after becoming Shelley Winters, the movie star. Quote, I didn't get the part, true, but Mr. Cukor made me feel as though I had. He was the first person to treat me as if I were really an actress. Unquote. And Shelley took Cukor's advice. She trained at the new theater school and gained some stage experience. By the time she caught the eye of Harry Cohen at Columbia Pictures, Shelley was a skilled actress who played comedy and drama with equal skill. If you remember from my introduction podcast on Shelley Winters, Shelley married first husband Paul Mayer shortly before signing with Columbia Pictures. But ultimately, Columbia didn't know how to use Shelley's unique look and talent. Just as husband Paul came back to the U.S. after his World War II service overseas, Harry Cohen dropped Shelley's option, releasing her from her contract. Paul encouraged Shelley to take a hint and set her acting dreams aside. And at first, Shelley agreed. The two made plans to move to Chicago, where Shelley would be a housewife and Paul a military flight instructor. But long, hard analysis about her passion for acting and the drift apart she and Paul both felt since he returned from the war ultimately led Shelley down a different path. Quote, In some mysterious way, the decision was out of my hands. I really had no choice. I didn't want the money so much. I didn't need the fame. But I had to perform. There was no other way I could live. Unquote. So Shelley stayed in Hollywood, Paul moved back to Chicago, and the two amicably divorced. It was a good thing that in Shelley's soul-searching, she discovered that her passion was for acting itself, not stardom, for success in the movies was still a ways off. In fact, Shelley was preparing to move back to New York and pursue a stage career when a gutsy phone call changed the course of her career. Shelley nervously called famed playwright Garson Kanan to see if he'd accept her as an understudy to Judy Holliday in Kanan's Born Yesterday, one of the most successful shows on Broadway at the time. She barely knew Kanan, but Shelley figured she had nothing to lose with the request. But when Garson Kanan actually answered the phone himself, and even remembered Shelley from their chance meeting in Walgreens years before, Shelley got so nervous, all she could do was talk about the weather and hang up the phone. Oh, it's the weather girl again, Kanan said when Shelley worked up the courage to call him back. Kanan told Shelley his play already had an understudy, but he'd have George Cukor give her a call to test her for a new film, which Kanan and his wife Ruth Gordon wrote the script for, and it was A Double Life. Shelley gratefully thanked Kanan, but didn't think he'd actually follow through with setting up this dream opportunity. Quote, I knew they'd give the part to Lana Turner or someone like that. I thought he was just trying to let me down easy. Unquote. So you can imagine Shelley's surprise when George Cukor's office contacted her the next day for a reading at Universal. The reading and audition went well, despite Shelley's best efforts to sabotage her chances. To save herself from disappointment, Shelley had convinced herself there was no way she'd get the role and almost missed her audition. 
showing up hours late after hitching a ride to Universal from comedian Lou Costello. As Shelley Winter's tall tale, I can't be sure, but it is a good story. Shelley stayed pessimistic about her chances with a double life, as days went by and she still hadn't heard from Cucor. She took Cucor's silence as a negative, and rather than harping on the disappointment, Shelley auditioned for the stage musical Oklahoma and was quickly cast as Ada Annie for the vitality she brought to the stage during her audition. But wouldn't you know it? After signing with the Theater Guild to do Oklahoma on Broadway, George Cukor called and told Shelley the role in A Double Life was hers. After so many years without exciting acting opportunities, Shelley Winters now had two plum roles on opposite sides of the country set to go into production at the exact same time. A nice dilemma to be in, but a dilemma nonetheless. Luckily, Cukor and Lawrence Langner of the Theater Guild worked everything out, and Shelley got the best of both worlds, filming A Double Life in Hollywood before heading to New York for Broadway and Oklahoma. Though George Cukor didn't initially recognize her from that long ago Gone with the Wind audition, he was just as reassuring with Shelley, nervous about her first big film role, as he had been over a decade earlier. The reason for Shelley's nerves? Handsome co-star Ronald Coleman. The English Coleman, a World War I hero with an impressive stage and film career that dated back to silent films, was revered for both his classy looks and acting skill. And Shelley, after admiring Ronnie on screen for so many years, couldn't believe that she was now acting alongside him. Shelley was so stunned, in fact, that she couldn't talk in his presence. Literally. As Shelley shared in an interview, quote, The first day on the set, Ronnie introduced himself and we started to rehearse. I was so terrified, suddenly acting with Ronald Coleman in the flesh. I had a Brooklyn accent. I was the kid from Brooklyn who'd finally gotten a big Hollywood part and was absolutely dumbfounded." Unquote. The simple exchange between Coleman's and Shelley's characters in their first scene to be filmed involved him asking her, a waitress, how the chicken cacciatore was. All Shelley had to say was, well, it's your stomach. But the words just wouldn't come. Quote, Would you believe we rehearsed for an hour and I still couldn't get it right? Then we did 96, 96 takes. Even for those days, that was a record. Everything imaginable went wrong. I stumbled in. I poured coffee on Ronald Coleman's hands. I poured coffee in his lap. I poured the water in the glass and it overflowed. The next take, I broke the glass. I kept four prop men and the wardrobe department cleaning up after me. It wasn't funny. It was a nightmare." Unquote. Shelley was certain that Cukor and Coleman viewed her as quote-unquote the village idiot and that Cukor would have her replaced. But then the unexpected happened. Her chivalrous co-star invited her to lunch. And after a nervous start, Ronnie made Shelley feel at ease over lunch and she began to relax. When they went back to the set, Shelley now viewed Coleman as a friend and delivered her lines flawlessly. From there on out, Shelley was a dream to work with. Shelley's new friend Ronnie even taught her a few invaluable things about film acting. Quote, I remember Ronnie taught me how to hit marks. You do it technically with your feet, and then you feel it. When the light is the hottest, then you're in the right place. 
you develop a kind of seventh sense. If you see a shadow on someone else's face, you know you're not on your mark. They never teach you that when you're a starlet in school, and that's exactly what they should teach you." Unquote. Due to George Cukor's status as one of the most important directors in Hollywood, filming was done sequentially, and Shelley appreciated this luxury, which allowed her to build her character in accordance with the progression of the storyline. Even the Othello scenes in the film were shot in order, as if Coleman and Signe Hasso were actually playing their scenes as Othello and Desdemona on stage. Other than Shelley's initial difficulties getting over her awe of Coleman, there were only two other hitches during filming. One was the insistence of the Hayes office that Ronnie keep one foot on the ground and that said foot be shown on camera while he strangles Shelley's character on her bed. That, the Hayes office arbitrarily decided, made it morally acceptable for Pat to have a man in her bedroom that she wasn't married to. The other hitch was Shelley's disappointment that George Cukor insisted she not be too glamorous in her role. According to Shelley, quote, Cukor would never let me wear false eyelashes, and I used to go in the corner and cry because I wanted to look glamorous. He wouldn't even let me curl my own eyelashes. Here I was, finally in a Hollywood movie, and I looked awful." Unquote. I must say that I disagree with Shelley. She's a knockout in the film, and stunningly glamorous. True, a waitress uniform, which Shelley wears for a good chunk of her scenes, isn't the most glamorous of attire, but Shelley's mane of platinum hair, styled very much like Rita Hayworth, does add glamour to the role. Not to mention the lacy nightgown Shelley's character wears on the unfortunate night she lets the murderous Tony into her apartment. In my book, Shelley's glamour in this, her first great screen role, was critical to Universal deciding to market her as their resident blonde bombshell in her ensuing years at the studio. A Double Life was a different kind of film for George Cukor, mostly because it broke from the sophisticated comedy mold Cukor so excelled at. Think 1940s The Philadelphia Story. But this haunting drama, with Cukor's careful direction, beautiful film noir cinematography, and nuanced performances from each cast member, was rewarded at the box office, earning $1.7 million in the U.S. and during awards season. A Double Life won two of the four Oscars it was nominated for, including Best Actor for Ronald Coleman. The whole cast and crew rooted for this classy gentleman to win the Oscar. And Ronnie, after three previous nominations, more than deserved the prestigious accolade for his amazing work in his dual role in A Double Life. The gracious Coleman reportedly cried with joy over the long-awaited victory. And to all visitors to the Coleman home afterwards, Ronnie would jokingly point to his Oscar on the mantle and say, quote, I hope you've noticed how inconspicuously I've placed it." Unquote. No one was more happy for Ronald Coleman than his grateful co-star, Shelley Winters, who never forgot Ronnie's kindly help that made her first featured film performance such a success. Not too long after completing A Double Life, Shelley Winters became roommates with her friend and fellow starlet, Marilyn Monroe. Shelley most consistently puts her time rooming with Marilyn around 1951, though she sometimes included the late 1940s in that date range as well. The two blonde beauties were, according to Shelley, roommates on and off for about a year. 
some of Shelley's Maryland anecdotes must, at the very least, be taken with a grain of salt. Like, for instance, the time Shelley says that she and roommate Marilyn went to a preview of Marlon Brando's 1954 film On the Waterfronts, and James Dean showed up afterwards to freak them out with a game of chicken on his motorcycle. Sounds like an anecdote with at least one too many Hollywood legends in it to be taken as fact, and a little bit more like the plot of Dean's Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, and there's also the fact that by 1954, when Shelley says the crazy night occurred, Marilyn was a megastar and married to Joe DiMaggio. Sorry, Shelley, it just doesn't add up. But embellishments aside, many of Shelley's Marilyn stories ring true. I absolutely love imagining Shelley and Marilyn furnishing their apartment together by pooling their meager starlet earnings and making lists of which men they'd each like to add to the notches on their belts. According to Shelley, the men on Marilyn's list were all intellectuals and not one was under 50. Shelley says that she and Marilyn even shared a few articles of clothing, specifically mentioning a striped bathing suit. And photos from about 1947 can be found of each starlet wearing the bathing suit Shelley describes. According to Shelley, this was another case of not having the funds individually to buy a cute swimsuit for modeling photos but together, they did, and took turns wearing that adorable striped suit on their respective shoots. If you're interested in seeing photos of Marilyn and Shelley each wearing the striped swimsuit, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com, and search A Double Life. More extravagantly, Shelley and Marilyn went in together on a mink coat and alternated wearing it to premieres and other ritzy events. Shelley describes the mink as, quote, the most beautiful one I ever had. If you see pictures of Marilyn or me around 1950 in a mink coat, you'll know it's the same one. Huge turnback cuffs, a stand-up collar, and ankle length. I still have this coat, only now the minks are a little tired." Unquote. Shelley later said that she didn't realize at the time of their friendship just what a role model she was for Marilyn, who was six years younger. It's possible that Marilyn's famous decision to train with the actor's studio in New York was even influenced by her friend Shelley, who made the same decision a few years earlier. Two ways Shelley claims she influenced Marilyn are particularly fascinating to me. According to Shelley Winters, that open-mouth smile Marilyn became so famous for was actually something Marilyn picked up from Shelley. Shelley's film career took off before Marilyn's, and one day, Marilyn came to visit Shelley on the set of 1948's Larceny. Shelley played yet another sensual blonde in the film, and Marilyn noticed that Shelley consistently smiled with her mouth open at the end of each scene. She asked Shelley why she did this unique smile, quote, Well, I have slightly bucked teeth, I told her, and when I smile with my mouth open, you can't tell. Marilyn thought it was very sexy and used the smile forever. I gave it to her with pleasure. I hated it on me." Unquote. Well, who would have thought? I must say, Marilyn does sport that open mouth smile before 1948, the year Shelley says Marilyn adopted it from her. But at the end of the day, it's still a great story, and not necessarily an untrue one. Marilyn's use of that open mouth smile did increase over the years after she met Shelley. It's possible that her love of Shelley's open mouth smile 
encouraged Marilyn to use it more frequently herself. And of course, as we all know, that smile eventually became Marilyn's trademark. Another way Shelley claims to have influenced Marilyn occurred on the set of Marilyn's 1954 film, River of No Return. As Marilyn fans know, the filming of this western was particularly difficult for Marilyn. Shot in the Canadian wilds, it was a physically demanding set. Adding to the difficulties of location shooting, Marilyn and her director, Otto Priminger, were not a good match. Priminger, famous for often unleashing his tyrannical temper on film sets, chose Marilyn as his unlucky target. And to top it all off, Marilyn broke her ankle during filming. Or did she? Shelley was filming her own epic western, Saskatchewan, at the same time and on the same location. She'd often go over to visit her buddy Marilyn on the set of River of No Return. One day, Shelley ventured over while Marilyn was filming a rafting scene on the river with the child actor, and what Shelley witnessed was heartbreaking. Quote, there were about 300 tourists watching the filming and listening to what was going on. Otto Priminger was standing on a tall ladder with a bullhorn directing Marilyn and the little boy. I immediately gathered that they'd been at the short scene all day, and now Marilyn did what she always did when she was confused. She just opened her mouth and smiled that sexy smile at anything in sight. At the tiller, the little boy, the camera, whatever. Priminger was looking slightly crazed because he was losing the light. As they fixed Marilyn's makeup, he began to use dreadful language, implying to an imaginary friend that Marilyn was so untalented she should stick to her original profession. Marilyn never looked up. Her fixed smile just became more frozen." Unquote. Priminger's insults were so bad, the young child actor playing the scene with Marilyn tried to divert Priminger's fixation on her by flubbing his own lines. It didn't work. Priminger continued humiliating Marilyn as 300 tourists and fans watched. At the end of that terrible day shooting, Shelley helped Marilyn off the raft. Marilyn had to step from the raft to appear before getting to land again, and she slipped a little in the process. Shelley caught her friend before a serious fall occurred and warned Marilyn to be careful, quote, watch your step, you can break a leg on this slippery wet pier, unquote. With Shelley's warning, an idea was planted. Shelley and Marilyn drove back to their hotel together. When they arrived, suddenly Marilyn was in pain and couldn't get out of the limo. Marilyn told Shelley she had broken her ankle. The tearful Marilyn was carried to her hotel room where a local doctor examined her ankle, but he could find no break. According to Shelley, Marilyn's tears continued and she insisted on getting a walking cast that extended from her ankle to just below her knee. Daryl Zanuck, worried about his investment in the film and his star, sent another doctor over to get a second opinion. The second doctor offered the same opinion, no break. A sprain perhaps, but no break. But Marilyn was adamant that she needed a walking cast and being Marilyn Monroe, who could refuse her? The doctors ignored their own diagnosis and put that unnecessary cast on. When Marilyn returned to the River of No Return set the next day limping, she made sure that Otto Priminger, the sympathetic cast, crew, and fans observing 
saw that cast before covering it with her costume. Then, as Shelley recounts, Marilyn sweetly asked Priminger how he would like her to play the scene. There was no way Otto Priminger would dare insult her now. With the cast, crew, and crowd on poor Marilyn's side, Priminger would have, at the very least, been booed off the set. Quote, Dumb like a fox was my young friend Marilyn, unquote, Shelley Winters remembered. That night, the two friends celebrated Marilyn's victory on the dance floor, with Marilyn occasionally forgetting that she was dancing on a broken ankle. And that's it for this week. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood as I cover the film that gave Shelley Winters her first on-screen chance to really ditch the glamour for a meaty role. Also starring a young Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift, it's 1951's A Place in the Sun.